Deactivate spark bucket. Oh, where the hell is the spark? Oh, there it is. Asteroid! Ma manganese welder to zero. Lunar scanner to one, that's me. Turn off biomodule. Activate garbage arrow muffler. Oh, uh, enable multi gas. Everybody shake! Yeah, that's actually the uh, <laughs> the most asked question I've gotten from our, uh, you know, our, our should, should we call them like twos of listeners, threes at this point, or? Everyone out there in vehicles in the parkland. <laughs> park land. That's right. Friends of this particular. Friends uh, of the vehicles. Yes. Um, has, has asked about this. Oh, God, this they're thing. VIPs, aren't they? Oh, mm. and we're going to have to do that. Right. Has asked where that comes from, and, you know. I guess not everybody, uh, not everybody went to law school, and um, good for good topic for, for another time. Whether that's Pareto <laughs> optimal or um, not, and uh, and for even those people that did go to law school, I suppose uh, you know the Hart Fuller debates that played out in the Harvard Law Review in 1958 uh, may not be may not have been of interest to uh, everyone. So you know. I, it occurs to me that you're probably the better suited of the two of us to actually speak to what uh, Hart and Fuller were talking about. I uh, was told that there would <laughs> be minimal legal realism <laughs> on this uh, podcast. Suffice it to say that uh, a relatively abstract <laughs> debate was had between two giants of legal theory in 1958. Uh in the pages of the Harvard Law Review, uh, about uh, really the the nature of uh, law, yes, as, and and um, what uh, whether law is I mean really crudely right whether law is what the statute says right or whether uh, law is an expression of uh, public values in some right. way you might call it more I think they. Called it morality, morality though yeah. I think that that's, as we use it now, not a great term for it, right? Right. Because, um, it's a reference to some sort of extrinsic values that yes. just aren't contained in the words. Yes. And so this is, in some ways, a descendant of what some people, maybe with a Catholic education, might know as natural law theory, the idea that uh, law among us mortals is a kind of imperfect expression of some you know, deeper metaphysical facts about the universe. But in a more modern post-war mindset, it's really more just a question. And, and for those with a philosophical training, I mean, it's kind of obvious how this arises out of sort of law school logical positivism and other post-positivist moves that people in America were maybe only. So, so there's a sidebar. Right. How you make a successful career in legal academia, and I don't think this was as true in 1958, and it certainly wasn't apparent to people in the way it is now in 1958, is you go and learn something that is fashionable in some reasonably worthwhile way in some field. So a few years ago, a good one was to read some Judith Butler right. and deconstruct gender. A few years before that, it might have been to learn uh, that race is a social construct. So you go and you learn that in college, and maybe, uh, maybe you get a Rhodes Scholarship and you go to Oxford and you learn it again, uh, but uh, with a better accent. And then you come back and you get a job at a law school, and you take an undergraduate paper that you wrote and then you rewrite it as a 100-page law review article with 300 or so footnotes, several of which will be to 
uh, the things you read as an undergrad, but then a lot of other things will look more law-y. And so you will then, without having technically stolen the idea, get credit for ideas that are quite widespread in parts of the campus that aren't the law school. And a really good way to do this is to go to a law school that is not the same campus as your undergraduate degree, so then you're really importing something fresh. So at various periods in history, this could have been that you took an economics course, that you can read French, um, uh, that you know some small amount of social science, um, and at various periods of time, even that you uh, know some like formal logic, or, or these days, um, and this is not to diminish it, but like um, uh, an acquaintance of mine named James Grimleman understands how computers work. So he gets to do things like write articles about intellectual property that don't just theorize about the internet, but in some ways speak to the internet. So what you've got happening right, with the Hart-Fuller debate is, I think, a not fully theorized, sorry, not fully meta-theorized, right? There's not this self-consciousness that what they're doing is importing the kind of post-Viennese debates about positivism. But it is, in fact, a fair bit of what I think is, is it, kind of in the long intellectual history view, kind of what's happening here is that they're importing some skirmishes, right? Um, uh, about the imminence of facts in the world and uh, the reality of moral facts um, and uh, trying to combine that with, uh, they didn't invent legal realism in 1958, right? Legal realism is a generation older, generation right. and a half Carl older. Carl Llewellyn in, what, the 1920s? I mean, we're in interwar years, yeah. let's say, right? And so, you know, legal realism is really crudely, uh, I always like to think of it as, the law is what a court will say the law is. Right. Or really, the law is what the state will use force to make you do. And I, I, that theory has just an in, in its very various, you know, sort of articulations, it's an enormous amount of power. But Hart and Fuller are kind of the, the choke point through which all of those debates have now come to us. I, I don't know why there was an extinction event right? And like all we got out of that influencing in some ways, at least the kinds of people who become, became judges in the 70s and 80s, were kind of the heart and fuller lines, right? In, in right. some ways. There's not like a deep richness to this. There was sort of the, I mean, that's not totally fair because there were still like natural certainly, law theorists. Well, so I, I think we should, there are certainly natural law theorists out there. I think we just, uh, I think one just got appointed to the Supreme Court. We'll, we'll get there. And um one's already studied there. with John Finnis, who yeah. is, oh, of course, right. a natural law, um, yeah. uh, you know, a theorist of natural law and a, and a believer in it. Um, but, you know, and, and, and certainly uh, what you're pointing to in kind of the intellectual history of how uh, people have come to teach law and how law has come to be taught. Uh, I think the paradigmatic example is the law and course, right? Ah. So people who people who mocked uh, and who still do mock sort of uh, legal education and whatever its excesses may have been in the 80s and 90s tend to point to the uh, you know proliferation of classes that were titled law and X, uh, where X was economics, uh, gender, literature, literature. And there's a whole lot of that going on, and um, it's it, it, which isn't to say that it was all bad, but it was certainly a an. It had its moment. It, it had a. It probably reached its uh, apogee mm-hmm. in the late '90s, early 2000s. So, like when I went to law school, you would say. 
Uh, uh, well, uh, yeah, yeah, and I, and I think it's in a it's in a different stage now. But I guess this is all to distract from um, what does vehicle you know what does vehicles in the park mean? Right. So vehicles in in the park is the ur example. So there's a sign that says, actually, it says no vehicles in the park. That's right. Uh, so you, you you see what we did there. Right. So so this is I mean this is the example that Hart and Fuller used when they when they went at it and for the generation or two of lawyers that uh was you know were sort of uh schooled uh in this this debate and you know probably had to go through this in law school and we'd say like that's the generation of uh lawyers that ended up teaching us and uh people who are still in law school uh you know finding some hapless student early in one L year Mm -hmm. and hitting them with the example of, you know, there's a law that says no vehicles in the park. Uh, Does it apply to uh, strollers? Ambulances. Uh, A tank for a war memorial. And, and this is how philosophers of the fifties did conceptual analysis without acknowledging they were doing conceptual (laughs) analysis was that they took the Langdell Socratic method Right, and they sort of did 1940s-style uh, Carnapian conceptual analysis <laughs> by picking on cold-calling students and asking them what they call hypotheticals. Right, right, um, and and I, I just so I went I, I I I went to law school after having studied analytic philosophy for some time. As is, I think, obvious to anyone listening to this podcast. And so a lot of law school from that perspective is people who've never heard of Wittgenstein getting paid a quarter of a million dollars a year. Like, which is not to say Wittgenstein is right. It's just to say having this kind of conversation in the shadow of philosophical investigations without even talking about, (laughs) right? Like, like. Like, there's a Wittgensteinian approach. Nobody knows what the Wittgensteinian approach is. There are different schools of interpretation of Latter Wittgenstein. But, like, there's at least some Latter Wittgensteinian point here, which is to say uh, that's not how concepts work. And so if you think what what Hart and Fuller are doing is arguing about which kind of backup there is to our legal concepts, right? Is it that they define a kind of circumscribed legal concept that acquires distinct meaning? Or is it that they, uh, that the law is a way of bringing our deeper, richer, and coed concepts into some kind of practical force? Um, I mean, that whole debate from the Wittgensteinian, like, what is a game you know, position in the, in the investigations, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Like, it's it's just, uh, like, tiny little question-begging people. Right, and I think, but, but I think that's why, uh, you know, I think that's why it gets used in law schools, because it's never used in the context of getting to what the law that says no vehicles in the park actually means. You're not yeah. trying to get to the bottom of it. What, you, what you're using it as is, you know, if you'll excuse the expression, a vehicle to just explore different, yeah. to, to explore analogical reasoning and to explore different ways of, you know, how, what we are engaged in when we're interpreting uh, right. a statute or Absolutely. engaged in, uh, you know, legal reasoning. And, you know, um, you know I, I mean, I can tell you uh, what an originalist would say, uh, you know, about, you know, about the no vehicles in the park law as applied to rollerblades. Mm-hmm. Uh, because an originalist would say uh, the people who wrote this law 
we're reasonable people and I am a reasonable person. And uh, as a reasonable person, I hate rollerblades. <laughs> and, uh, and therefore, this law was clearly this meant to exclude uh, rollerblades. And uh, that, in a nutshell, is how originalism works. <laughs> Simple crash. Um, that is how uh, a cranky old manism works. And Query whether there's a difference well, between that and originalism. Well, I mean, it depends. Is the person wearing the rollerblades uh, in a bikini? <laughs> uh, and, yeah, so the descendants of the two sides of the 1950s split between what we're going to call sort of, um, uh, what do you want to call them? You call them positivists and kind of moral rights people, right? right. That descends into, so the positivists become or sorry, the originalists think they're the descendants of the positivists in That's this right. debate. Uh, and the purposivists, who Stephen Breyer is kind of a, a good example right. of this as somebody who claims that this is his interpretive methodology, say, uh, it would be good to know what the people who wrote that law thought about vehicles and what they were trying to get at. And so... There's, look, there's just no question that, that if a car is a vehicle, so, so we have a focal case, right? Everybody agrees that just a, a commuter's car is obviously encompassed. A, a commuter's car, Cateris Paribus, not trying to save somebody's life, not trying to get to the hospital, somebody is trying to get to work, doesn't get to drive through the park. We all know that, right? Like, so that's that's just the like, core case. That's like right. the core case. Kid on a big wheel, difficult, more difficult case. Right. Hard case is supposed to be the ambulance. Physically, it's like the car, only more so. But did the people who came up with this want people to die in the park because the ambulances couldn't get to them? Like, that's a real question. Depends on whether they were on rollerblades or not. Uh, if, although, if there are no vehicles in the park, it's harder to die on rollerblades. The, the point being that whether the right way to get at this is to find out if rollerblades or ambulances are vehicles or whether the right way to get at this is to figure out what the law either was trying to do or even more progressively like what we would want it to do now right those are the modern guises in which this debate plays out and it has real world consequences right Absolutely. all over the place um uh, including in like the second round Obamacare case, the subsidies thing, right? right. Um, there was a sort of Scrivener's error. So, so the way Obamacare got passed was in two parts, right? The part that didn't go through reconciliation and the part that did. And uh, they weren't mashed up very well for lots of reasons. And so there are these things that if it were a monolithic piece of legislation, you'd call a Scrivener's error. Uh, that are not Scrivener's errors, right? They're Congress... By which you mean like a, a typo, It's almost like a typo. It's almost like a typo. It's, it's like something cross-references another section, but in that other section, a word is used in a kind of disjunctive way, and the, the later section calling upon it kind of uh, assumes that it was defined in more... So this, this was to do with whether the states that didn't set up exchanges and so therefore went on the federal marketplace could get subsidies. Right. And, and the Supreme Court ends up taking a kind of a purposivist approach to this, which is always the safety valve for originalists and positivists as well, right? Which is to say, well, there'd be an absurd result if you took the language literally. There'd be an right. absurd result if you only looked at the language. The, the whole project means something, either in its totality or as an expression of 
unarticulated values. Yeah. Completely. So, so you know, one thing that I, I, I find fascinating about this, and, and again, it's why I, you know, I, I think it makes uh, why Vehicles in the Park is the right uh, title for, uh, or at least a right title for our podcast, is that it is a, again, as an illustration, as a hypothetical, it, it has, uh, it's a great way of working through all sorts of uh, debates in the law. You know, it's kind of like the Simpsons of law. It is, uh, it's just a vehicle to tell a whole bunch of different stories, right? Mm -hmm. And by the way, I don't think it's a coincidence that um, Homer Simpson is named Homer, right? Uh, I think as a, as sort of a vehicle for telling an entire culture's stories, uh, Homer Simpson has got to be one of the, greatest such uh, fictional vehicles in history. And uh, I think Vehicles in the Park is, for law and analogical reasoning, uh, it's kind of like The Simpsons. You will eventually hit everything if you uh, keep discussing uh, what is and isn't permitted in uh, this hypothetical park. And, uh, and, I, and I think our podcast will uh, probably end up doing the same if, we, uh, if, if we're able to go on for long enough. So you've imputed a purposivist. Uh, significance to Homer Simpson. But what if I were to go into the legislative history and tell you that Homer Groening was Matt Groening's father and that Homer Simpson is named for Matt Groening's father, which is true. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I'd actually run into that. And I but think that the... true. Yeah, but I think the purposivist reading is still the better one in like the Dorkinian sense, mm-hmm. right? Like it is, it just makes for a better explanation of what The Simpsons is if Matt Groening isn't just Bart and Homer isn't just his father. Yeah, but this is how we debate about things in the Constitution all the time. It makes a better (laughs) expression, from my perspective, of what the Second Amendment is, that it's about an expression of of collective will and collective self-defense, right? Right. And not about just making sure that there's always a coup at the door of Congress, which is, I guess, (laughs) officially the position now. So what is the uh, analog of the Treehouse of Horror episodes? If, if The Simpsons is the, this debate, if it's a vehicle through which we can run any other kind of value distinction that we want to articulate, <laughs> right? There's, there's the rumspringa right. yeah. of the Treehouse of Horror episodes. Do they have a correlate in our civic life? Or in the you law? know, it used to be state constitutional law. Right. There used to be some states where just crazy That's things so would good. happen. That's and so, so, so like California, so California and New Jersey, at least when I, yeah. when I was in law school, those are the examples that we would use for states that would be sort of outliers in the sense of doing things in state constitutional interpretation. And well, well rather their state Supreme Courts were um, were outliers, depending on how you looked at it in a good or bad sense in advancing, uh, advancing the law in different directions. Yeah. So uh, California under Roger Traynor, um, sort of the golden age of, you know, California being very, very forward leaning in its uh, jurisprudence. Um, and then, uh, you know, I don't even know who the New Jersey figures are. I yeah. One of my personal grievances. So you know, Janice Rogers Brown, who was a George W. Bush appointee, to the D.C. Circuit, which is generally thought to be the second most significant federal appeals court, you know, after the Supreme Court, um, had served on the California Supreme Court. 
That's right. And she got some questions about the independence of state constitutional decision-making in her confirmation hearing, and she completely flubbed them. It was as though she did not understand. They were literally, there were questions about the separate and independent state ground doctrine, which is basically if state courts do a thing and they cite federal cases, then the Supreme Court will hold them to whatever the federal outcome would be unless they're really clear that they're not trying to make a federal constitutional holding, that they're doing something else. Right. And you know, Massachusetts, by the way, in criminal procedure, is the area I know, does this a lot too. They actually do articulate separate and independent state constitutional law. And I just still can't believe that there's somebody on the D.C. Circuit who had been on the California Supreme Court who didn't understand separate and independent state ground. I remember I was in law school when she was nominated to the D.C. Circuit, and we actually read some of her opinions in my criminal law class, and I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of us were aghast um, at her uh, her approach to the law, and um, she has yet to write any opinions <laughs> that have uh, that have proved that reaction to be to have been uh, overwrought. So this isn't something we plan to talk about today, but I want to take a couple minutes on something. One of the things that Justice Scalia was widely noted for having said in the economia and obituaries about him last year was that he was writing, particularly in his dissents, that he was writing for law students. That he And this was taken as him playing the long game, that he was writing to plant seeds in the next generation that might not pay off in cases that came before him, but that would move the legal discussion. And he was clearly very successful in doing that. Right. But I mean, there are a lot of things that adolescents like that then become unwelcome if they are uncritically brought into our national life. The fact that the Speaker of the House Ayn still Rand. thinks Atlas Shrugged <laughs> is a great book, right? Exactly. Um, I mean, it would be as though somebody wanted to replace the national anthem with um, something from Led Zeppelin IV. Like, it I mean, is more appealing to adolescents. I w with, with our current speaker, I'd be more worried about his apparent affection for Papa Roach. Uh, <laughs> Zeppelin would be a, a, an improvement. <laughs> but it, it is interesting to think about uh, the, the, the idea of manipulating adolescent minds to preclude adult thought. Um, I don't think that's what Scalia thought he was doing. I'm not. I'm not so sure, actually. I, I'm. I'm. You know, he is. You know, I'm not sure, so sure. He's a guy who went to like almost like a military. You know, he, his his high his high school was almost like a military school experience, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I'm not so sure that that's what he. That's at odds with his, uh, with his goal there, because certainly that was its effect. I mean, uh. It, my my experience in law school was certainly that every class was um, pitting whatever the majority opinion was against the Scalia dissent or vice versa, and uh, mm. Scalia was the it was the counter argument in every you know his was the counter argument in every single class that you were uh, contending with if you were a. Uh, you know, if you were a liberally inclined student yeah. and uh, and there really wasn't anybody else. Right. It was. Yeah. And, and that's kind of that's kind of nuts when I think about it. That's that's at least I want to say 15 to 20 years of law students who've essentially been 
even if uh, you know, even if at, through the vehicle of like opposing him, been indoctrinated in his thinking. So at least for me, encountering Scalia stuff in law school was a lot like encountering. Um, people who'd read Anarchy State, State and Utopia and then nothing else in college, right? Like, the clarity of radical libertarianism in moral philosophy is cleansing. It feels, I think this is definitely a male perspective, but there's like a, a certainty and a clarity. It's like joining a religious, it isn't a religious cult, but it's like joining a religious cult. Uh, entering into any belief system that thinks it not only has all the answers, but that the answers are easy to find, and that anybody who doesn't follow that methodology and doesn't have those answers is a fool or a fraud, like, that is a really appealing intellectual standpoint to occupy if you don't have the life experience to understand that it is an unsustainable outlook, yeah? And the thing that continues to puzzle me about Scalia, so we all know, right, like, so the trick with Scalia is that he has a very clear, well, he has two tricks. He has what he claims is a very clear deductive system for reaching results. Sometimes he claims to follow it when he doesn't follow it. More often, he follows it without disclosing all the premises that make the deductions sound. And it's never been entirely clear to me how in on the joke he was and how much he was just blind to the amount uh, that he was importing. And what's so what so becomes so interesting about this, and what brings it back to Vehicles in the Park, right, is that the uh, Scalia-type originalists are the descendants of the positivists, the people who say the law is what the law says, not what we wanted to say, and not what the people who wrote it wished they'd said, or would have wanted to say if they'd lived long enough to be sitting on the court interpreting this case. But the way he makes that, I mean, have you seen Short Circuit? Yeah. Right? They don't get happy. They don't get, it's a robot. It doesn't get happy. It doesn't get sad. It just right. runs programs. That's what he always wanted to say. Or, or the, the T-1000, right? Or the T-1000. Um, I'm just a judge. I don't cast vote. You know, I, I don't run, for, I don't run right. for office. I don't, uh, I don't make policy. Make right? policy. I just run the program of applying statutes to facts. How much did he believe that? <laughs> You know, what what I find fascinating in is what I find fascinating is that Scalia is the most Protestant justice that we have <laughs> when it comes to his jurisprudence, which is so at odds with his, you know, with his personal faith, which, you know, it's not that they have to be they have to correspond, but you take I mean, you take Catholicism with its like body of like doctrine developed over the years. I mean, there's like a, there's a system of precedent there's at, yeah. at work, and it's very much based on um, ex, you know sort of this extrinsic body of authority that's been built up outside of the text over uh, you know over yeah. a thousand years. Yeah. And uh, and and Scalia is is very much like a you know, it, it approaches the Constitution and approaches law, really, as like a Protestant fundamentalist. It's Absolutely. like the text, it's all there in the text. We don't really need to, I mean, it's not that he didn't believe in in precedent at all, but it was a strong belief that it was all there. And if you were only, uh, you know, and if you only could see it, um, you would see that he was right. 
It's interesting because I take it his answer to this distinction would have been that Catholic doctrine was guided by an interventionist God, but that mortal lawmaking was was not. I don't know why he would particularly have thought that. I mean, one one explanation you might have for this is you know Scalia's unusual biography that he was what the only nephew. He was the only nephew, niece, or child of like seven siblings on one side of his family. So he was the repository of the hopes and dreams of a large family. And then he went on to have a large right. family. So he's, again, this kind of choke point. But um, that he had a special communion with authority <laughs> in a way that is much more Protestant than the kind of uh, Catholic model of coming to God in community and, and kind of in a, in, a, in a mass, forgive the pun. Right. I mean, I just, I, I, I find, you know, I, I find the case of Scalia to be uh, an interesting one and uh, one that, you know, I think uh, not just lawyers, but I mean, the United States is going to continue to uh, contend with for a long time, which is, uh, you know, which is why I think it's kind of interesting that uh, he now has a replacement on the court. And uh, so, you know, Neil Gorsuch was uh, confirmed to be the uh, junior justice uh, of the Supreme Court, which means that uh, he, he will open the door every time there's a opens the door. I think he has to carry the tea um, and or the, the, the teapot. Right. There's something there's something involving a teapot. So I've heard. Um, and, and, you know, and he gets to cast votes in capital cases now. Mm-hmm. Uh, which he's uh, which he's already done and decline courtesy fifths, which and they now do, because uh, you know um, institutional prerogatives and uh, you know tradition just isn't what it used to be. I saw something on the transcript today that he cut somebody off with a like, "If you would let me finish, then you would know what my question is." Kind of <laughs> objection, which I thought only the chief ever got to make, but fine. Uh, you know, um, I. I it is. It's interesting because we can't say that this was at all a surprise, right? Um, I mean, Gorsuch is now the third of the sort of the Federalist Society sort of cookie cutter justices, where uh, they came up in a system that explicitly groomed, uh, you know, groomed young lawyers that were very ideologically committed. For the bench. Yeah. And made sure that they met the right people, networked in the right way, sort of built up a profile while simultaneously staying under the radar uh, in, in other ways. Yeah. And I think they were also part of the machine that I think at first not consciously, but ended up conflating Republican identity with conservative identity. Right. They thought they were committed to the conservative project in the way that I think in 1997 people thought Fox News was committed to the conservative project. But it turns out that what the Federalists are is Republican Party operatives, and it turns out that what Fox News is is a governance organization for the Republican Party. I, I have a tendency to want to give John Roberts a little more credit. John Roberts came through the same machine, sure. but it was a little immature when he started in it, and he's also a more exceptional person. Like, like. Alito is just some guy, so far as I can tell. Like, Alito's just some guy who came up through the Federalist machinery and did a good job. I, as far as I can tell, Gorsuch is just some guy who came up through the Federalist machinery and did a good job. Roberts, I think, is a kind of exceptional lawyer who would have been a top-tier lawyer even without that 
yeah, could well, have been without that pipeline. No, I, I don't think Alito would be anybody without having fallen into a pipeline. No, uh, so I'm inclined to agree with that in part because Roberts is the one with the messiest record, mm-hmm. right? Roberts is the one that had the executive branch positions in the Reagan administration where he wrote things about civil rights and uh, desegregation that, um, you know, had he not been such a, uh, a charming presence, at least to the Republican senators during his confirmation hearings, uh, would have a generation ago been disqualified. Yeah, he hadn't always played it safe, right? Right, right. Whereas, uh, you know, with Alito and and with Gorsuch, uh, you know, they've done enough to signal their ideological commitments um, you know, certainly I'm surprised that in Gorsuch's case, we had somebody who'd written a book about natural law and euthanasia, uh, you know, and, and, and end of life decisions. Uh, did I say natural life? I meant natural law. Yeah. So I, I, I think that what happened there is the heavy hand of deep status quo bias. I don't think that... McConnell would have gone to the mat if Obama had been replacing Ginsburg. I think McConnell only pulled the the thing that he pulled, which I think changes the course of the relationship between the political branches and the Supreme Court forever, right? I don't ever think there will be another um, counterparty confirmation of a Supreme Court justice um, because of what he did. But it was about the the entrenched status quo bias with the Republicans that they get at least a generally Republican-leaning Supreme Court. I think it would have been a battle royale over Kennedy. I think it was a battle royale over uh, replacing a major conservative. I think that if it had been replacing a liberal with a liberal, they wouldn't have thought that they needed to do this to get to six to three. They needed to do this to maintain five to four. And, and yes, to lay the groundwork that if they got to replace Kennedy, uh, that they would then get the Roe versus Wade thing, I suppose. But beyond that, I think this was about uh, an unwillingness to lose that seat. And so, of course, who do you put in that seat but a functionary? And because the whole point was that you're filling a Scalia seat, right? If, if the whole dynamic of how you got there, if the whole reason this wasn't Merrick Garland's seat was that sufficient political force was arrayed behind the idea that it was a Republican seat, then it it didn't matter that he'd written a book about how he was pro-life. It didn't matter that he then was willing to lie about whether that meant he was pro-life. I mean, Uh, what did it matter? That's interesting. So I think think part of what's going on there is you've got uh, got a president who, uh, you know, managed— Well— uh, in name, uh, and, and our president may be a they and not an it, and he may also be Cthulhu. Like it's very hard to, <laughs> it's very hard to tell most days. But uh, you know, Trump ran on uh, an, an incredibly uh, ideologically heterodox uh, platform for a Republican. But one thing he did say early on is, uh, "I'm going to get you a pro-life justice," mm-hmm. and so I think. The need to signal that his pick was uh, was the pro-life justice that he had promised may have actually, you know, militated in the direction of 
let's let's get Gorsuch, who's written on uh, you know who's written on sanctity of life issues very publicly as uh, as a way of telling the base stick with me, right? Um, or or at least that portion of the base to stick with him through. Uh, you know, through his presidency. I, I would have credited that more, or I credited that kind of explanation more back when it happened. Subsequent experience shows that what's happened is that Trump was literally saying anything that popped into his mind to get elected, that he had no sense of how he wanted to pick and choose among Republican factions in governance, that he's entirely uh, oriented around what he can do in the transaction before him, right? And that there isn't some kind of large-scale effort to buy off the traditional Republicans or to push away the traditional Republicans. I think it was just this guy looks like a judge um, and they kind of jibed and what else did there need to be? I, and, oh, and, and he was who Rents wanted, right? And Rents cared more right. than Bannon so, about So I would this. say from Trump's perspective, that's probably right. It's like, oh, here's a biped who's wearing a tie. Like, <laughs> like probably works for him. Who is not him. related to me. <laughs> right, right. Um, whereas, uh, you know, and, and which is why, you know, uh, like the, you know, he had he left the decision to others, right? So yeah. Leonard Leo and McGahn and... Right. Um, and I just wonder to what degree did they uh, did did somebody who's doing some thinking and maybe that's just optimistic to think that's even happening uh, or pessimistic I guess it's hard to, <laughs> hard to tell these days but um, you know was that a factor I, I guess I guess even setting that aside for a second yeah. and again I'm still I'm still just sort of shocked that that, that there wasn't more pressure put on what is such a strong red flag uh, in terms of signaling how he's going to vote on, uh, on, on not just Roe, but like a range of issues that, uh, that involve, uh, you know, issues of conscience and right. um, issues of personal conscience. But uh, that he got a pass by saying, you know, the code words, uh, I'm an originalist. Uh, which he which he did say, um, but uh, and then just refusing to answer any questions about what that actually meant, right? And 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 I guess that's important because you know the most charitable version of Scalia's originalism is, and and you know, is that it's a to just back up for a second. So, so a charitable reading uh, or, or a charitable view of Scalia's originalism is uh, this is a method. It constrains judges by looking at the sort of original intent or the original. So either the original intent of the Constitution, which Scalia later backed off from to say the original uh what people would have understood the Constitution to have meant at the time that it was ratified. Or, or a statute or whatever. But yeah, the original public meaning of the words as written on the page. Now, um, you know, I, I think it's obvious uh, that that's not, uh, that's not a straightforward exercise at all. And I think it's free. It, it, and, and I think what, you know, even if we're to be charitable to Scalia in sort of as to what the abstract of originalism is or, or what originalism is in the abstract, 
uh, in practice, uh, you know, he seemed to reach conclusions that lined up with his sort of partisan political preferences, uh, like pretty pretty consistently. Yeah. Right. With the with the notable <laughs> exception of uh, Texas v. Johnson, the flag burning case, which he would trot out every single time to say, "Look, originalism doesn't mean that you get your way every time." Well, and I think that uh, some of the criminal procedure. That's right. So, progressivism. So, so right to confront your accuser. And, yeah. Uh, cases and so, so so there were pockets here and there, yeah. but by and large, um, certainly, what he articulated as it came to be practiced by sort of judges of the next generation mm-hmm. seemed to be a pretty ideologically uh, like outcome determinative uh, way of approaching cases. And just to be clear, not only because conservatism in general would rather things come out the way they would have come out in 1798 than the way they would have come out if put to a majority vote today. Like, it's not conservatism as throwback, right? Like, there's something more going on there. It's not literally, uh, we know that Madison thought that this word... So, so, like, there are terms in the Constitution that are a little tricky. Yeah. Like high crimes and misdemeanors. Like that's not a way people talk anymore. Right. That, that's a standard for impeachment. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, like that's a question where you'd like to know something about the original public meaning of those terms. And it turns out that in the late 18th century to people who knew things about English law, those were not just colorful terms. They kind of referred to some particular episodes. They were a right? term of art. Right. And so that is a case where, I'm not saying it's the only methodology, but I'm saying where the question of what was the original public meaning of these words? What if somebody stood up on a tree stump in a park and started talking about them? Would an appropriate audience have understood? That's a totally reasonable question. That's not... It's not that he's driving outcomes by saying, well, it turns out that in 1798, these words meant what I wanted them to mean now, right? No, I, I, I mean, that's, uh, that's right. That's right. I, I guess, you know, bringing it back to, to Gorsuch and why, um, you know, why I just, uh, I find the entire, his entire confirmation process yeah. to have been so frustrating is that the question wasn't asked, right? Um, you know, you're you're a, you're a self-professed originalist, um, but you're not answering any of our. You're not answering any hypotheticals, and you're refusing to comment on past cases. So, can we just assume that as an originalist, you would reach, uh, you know, the same outcomes as Justice Scalia in this range of cases, right? And he would have he would have refused to answer, of course. But uh, there's some there, there's some burden shifting that could have gone on. Uh, just as a matter of, uh, you know, just as a matter of public, uh, you know, in, in the public consciousness to say, you're not telling us what you think, but you believe X. Somebody who believes X uh, also believed this range of things on abortion, uh, uh, you know, capital punishment, um yeah. How, how much do you think that is driven by the popular, and I assume on Capitol Hill as well, misconception that Scalia and Thomas were originalist peas in the pot? And so Scalia and Thomas didn't actually correlate 
with one another, with one another exceptionally well. There were plenty of terms where Scalia correlated more with another conservative justice. Thomas is just jurisprudentially a total weirdo, right? He's right. completely marching to the beat of his own drummer, but in very originalist clothing. And, you know, Scalia uh, getting credited with originalism, and I think therefore originalism just as a whole a brand, uh, has survived partly by people not noticing that to the extent that there were two originalists of roughly the same generation on the Supreme Court at roughly the same time, they didn't agree all that much. I mean, this is this is sort of the, in, in, I think, very, very interesting sectarian hair splitting that we can do with uh, conservative, uh, you know, w- with conservatives, uh, with conservative judges, really. I mean, you know, it's almost as if uh, Scalia is closer to being like a Lutheran, right? Like a like an original, like Martin Luther, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, you don't need uh, the intermediate. You, you don't need uh, you don't need priests to tell you what the Bible means. Uh, you just need to, you know, you just need to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and, you know, it's, it's actually maybe Thomas who's more the sort of. 19th 20th century fundamentalist who uh really rejects precedent and thinks that oh the meaning is just these words it's on the page you don't need a whole lot of context you don't even need a church right you just need the book and um we could probably read a lot (laughs) yeah i mean i mean scalia in his book well, he has a book that's really just lectures. He called himself a faint-hearted originalist, right. by which he basically meant that when originalism led to a more radical outcome than he, than he could tolerate, he'd give it up. Whereas Thomas, partly, I think, by virtue of never commanding a majority for any of these views, is happy to articulate a very radical uh, interpretation and, and to get there unconstrained by the fact that it would upset settled expectations or tradition or precedent, what have you. Or, or what does being an originalist mean when every conservative judge, I mean, now now there's just like a, a one-to-one correspondence between Republican lawyer or Republican judge and originalist. Well, almost. I mean, there is still a little bit of a Chicago school. That's right. It's it's small. <laughs> and, and until last week, there was like John Noonan, Noonan. and a sort of pre-originalist, like genuine uh, social conservatism. So, so right? I guess to be more accurate, I guess, I mean, the sort of post-Scalia generation yeah, of, yeah. of judges. I and mean, maybe I really mean like Roberts is probably at the earlier end of that. Yeah. Um, but since Roberts, certainly... Yeah. Uh, it's just being an original. There aren't uh, a lot of judges that are, you know, re- Republican-appointed judges that don't conform to that thinking. And so, uh, you know, it, it just raises the question of what does this mean other than an ideological uh, well, signal? Mean, the richness of the irony here, I mean, it just it needs to be spelled out as often as possible. Scalia claims that the point of originalism is to constrain judges because they're unelected and unaccountable, federal judges in particular, and otherwise they'd be too powerful. Then you have a Republican Party that recognizes that Supreme Court justices are so powerful that it is worth 
whatever damage it causes to not allow a president to confirm a justice for an entire year in the hope, and remember, for a lot of 2016, it looked like the Republicans just had no way of getting to point. But just whatever their marginal shot was, it was worth absorbing whatever the cost was to have a chance of appointing the junior justice to maintain a conservative seat. So clearly, if the point of originalism was to keep the judicial branch from becoming too powerful, it failed, right? Right. It, right. Has, it has gone hand in glove with the kind of uh, revolution we've had really since the, uh, Brown versus Board, since the Second World War, of uh, our political branches being unable to settle deep divisive questions and federal judges not being afraid at the end of the day when things had ripened for a while to um, make decisions. You know, it's, it's interesting that one of the, so one, you know, one of the few bright spots, I thought, in Gorsuch's con confirmation hearings was a uh, line of questions by, I believe, Senator Blumenthal, where he asked the nominee, uh, you know, these outside groups are spending a lot of money. Like, they, mm -hmm. they publicly <laughs> said, this is how much money we're spending to get him confirmed. Uh, and this is how much money we spent on blocking uh, Merrick Garland. Yeah. And, and he just asked, he's like, what do you think they're buying? Like, I mean, do you know why they're willing to spend so much money on you? And of course, Gorsuch d declined to answer. But rhetorically, I mean, that's... Right. If you if you think that uh, if you're a majoritarian, which is, again, what uh, what conservatives, you know, claim to be when they're sort of formulating this like mm -hmm. modern day orthodoxy of right. conservative judicial belief is uh, judges should ultimately be majoritarians at heart and let the political branches, uh, you know, and, and not get in the way of the political branches. Um. What I find kind of interesting is the last president to really take that kind of approach, even when it was self-defeating, was Barack Obama. Yeah. Well, look, th there's a story you can tell here, and I'm not sure that it works completely. I think of it as a kind of um, voxy story <laughs> to tell. Uh, we have a partisan realignment that has happened. And it's different from the other partisan realignments that have ever happened in American history. We are finally in line with the other competitive democracies. You know, Japan is different, whatever. We're finally in line with the other competitive democracies where the liberals and the conservatives have sorted. Now, the conservatives are weird because they are a combination of uh, plutocratic progressive conservatives and revanchist populist conservatives, but they're all over there, right? And the uh, progressives are on the other side and sort of, you know, ethnically heterodox, but not so outcome heterodox. Right. All the arguments for the idea that judicial politics were constitutional politics on a higher plane were drawn up before that sorting out was complete. When you could think that somebody like David Souter could be conservative in manner and Republican in outlook, 
but actually quite socially egalitarian, right? He was a kind of uh, Yankee Republican of the sort that is not an entity that exists anymore. And the way the divided parties have digested that is that he was a traitor to the Republican Party, an embarrassment to George H.W. Bush, and he became a liberal, right? right? I'm sure he doesn't think he became a liberal. I think he thinks he's who he always was. I'm, I'm, I'm right. certain that's a And he was job. miserable in the job, but that's just like orthogonal to the rest of this. And so part of what we have is just the very slow recognition because you know part of what the judiciary does is just create a kind of generation-long forward smear from the politics at any particular time right, right? we still have right like we're just get, we still have Reagan lagging indicator of well yeah, well, yeah it, it reflects politics at, at, at a remove as at a remove as it was as they were in the past right so the federal courts of appeals are now largely out of Reagan and Carter appointees in active service there are still a few of each um, predominantly it's Obama and uh, uh, Bush 43 appointees right the Supreme Court has a sort of different distribution. And I think what we're seeing is the lagging recognition that in the same way that everything became partisan sorted and in the same way that the partisan sort then reduced, we've talked about this in the last yeah, podcast, yeah. reduced all the norms that were attendant to the political process, like that's ramifying into judicial politics, right? Oh, absolutely. But I, I think it's an important, it's, it's a point that's, that, that's worth um revisiting really quickly, which is, you know, the reason that, um, you know, one reason that the Republicans are so willing to blow up norms over a court that, you know, again, in, in, in terms of what the at least stated uh, ideology is, or, or judicial philosophy of conservatives is, um, that judges should just be deferring to the elected branches of government, how willing they are to blow things up to make sure that they've uh, that that they can keep a majority on the Supreme Court or uh, can appoint judges to lower courts um, says you know it speaks to this anxiety. It's, it's 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 like certainly there's a demographic anxiety that that you know uh, we could certainly see at work in uh, the last presidential election, but uh, you know they're willing to it's it's. It, if we were, you know, if we're to look at this in like game theory terms, and I know that game theory is thanks to a certain person on Twitter, uh, you know, talking about game theory is now just inviting uh, I- inviting mockery. But if you were to look at this as sort of a repeat prisoner's dilemma type game, um, Democrats continue to play as if uh, you can still send signals to the other side that we can both cooperate and get to an optimal outcome. Yeah. Uh, Republicans are playing as if it's like round 19 out of 20. Like it's, yeah. they are, uh, they're willing to sell out the other side um, for gain with no investment in the future because they are convinced that the end is right around the corner. Yeah, well, they're willing to eat the seed corn right. because they know that if they show up hungry the next day, the Democrats will take pity <laughs> on them and give them some. Like, it's Eddie Haskell. They're just shameless, and they are just getting by on the hope that their marks will remain marks. And okay, you know, why do they care so much about the Supreme Court? It can't be that they care so much about fetuses because they've had forty years 
to really do something about Roe. Yeah, and they've I don't done they a really terrible want. job. They don't. They they do care about quashing unions, right? They yes. really wanted to win this union case, but I think that's based on a relatively outmoded theory of what beats them in elections. I mean, unions are important, but diminishingly yeah. so. Public sector unions, particularly, and so uh, they can try this, but the Obama coalition is still going to end up ascendant. Like they still don't seem to me to have a way of leveraging these kind of tactical successes into a real theory of what happens if the game goes into overtime, if there is a round 21, and they're just out of, um, I lost the metaphor, they had a cards at that point, <laughs> they're out of um, simulacra, what are they? Uh, yeah, I, I, out of Engage for Nexus. Mince ambigrator. Turn on flange cushion. Disable nano radar. So The Expanse just wrapped up. I think I finished it a few days after it finished. I have not read those books. Have you? I, I haven't read the books either. So, so my understanding is that The Expanse through season two is through some part of the second book, but maybe not the whole of the second book of this series. It certainly didn't feel like it ended where a book would end. Um, thoughts? So, so it's kind of interesting because what it was sold as was kind of, this is Game of Thrones in space, and um, it still doesn't feel that way to me. Um, it, it feels like something else entirely. Mm-hmm. One thing that I do find, I mean, you know, so to, you know, to start at the broadest level, um, it's enjoyable, generally. Uh, it's, you know, it's well-acted, high production, you know, production values are good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, which is always, for, for science fiction shows, is always, like, a really, really dicey proposition. And um, and it's got a, a space grammar that is different from the other influential space. I, I, this is just a pocket interest of mine. But, like, you know, Battlestar Galactic and Firefly both did this kind of handheld shaky cam yes. space grammar. Uh, that you could do with the new computer graphics. Right. Star Trek and Star Wars have to some degree kept to an older naval metaphor yes. of space flight that was partly yes. driven by what you could do with visual effects. Star Wars increasingly is kind of breaking free. Rogue One broke that a lot more. It That's was right. more it was more three dimensional. And actually Star Wars episode three did that as well. It was more three dimensional. But um uh, Star Trek still kind of keeps the idea that all the ships are on a, a plane, plane together. Yes. And so one thing I like about it, again, not what matters so much for artistic merit, but it has a different kind of uh, less grungy uh, realism to the space geometry. And I, I think it does a good job of telling uh, three-dimensional orientation pieces yeah. of the story in ways that matter. Because one of the nice things about it coming from kind of hard sci-fi literature is that the space stuff isn't all MacGuffin. Like, like the details of it occasionally matter to the characters. Um, and that, I think, is actually also true of Game of Thrones, uh, to the original books, right? right? So, you know, hard fantasy and hard sci-fi, like, sometimes people do things because they haven't fucking taken a shower or eaten in three <laughs> days, right? And on TV, that never happens. It's never somebody's motivation that they're tired and hungry. But in Lord of the Rings, like, you can count how much Sam and Frodo have left to eat right. as they are climbing the mountain. And so one thing that I like about The Expanse is that the... Uh, the hard sci-fi matters, right? The 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 
levels at which they've worked out what it would be to be in this situation matter, it is not just metaphor. It is not just contemporary people doing contemporary things on a spaceship set. And I like that. No, that's right. And that's, you know, especially in how it, Yes, it, it, it shows up in, in every in every episode at least once. Yeah. Right. There's the the practicalities of 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 having to do things in space uh, uh, intrude and, and are integral to the plot yeah. in a way that it's, it's right. It's not space's metaphor. Um, you know, one thing I, I, I find interesting and, it, it, you know, it really like it reminds me of True Detective. Um, oh, the first season. OK. So, so there's, uh, you know, this is really the only season of True Detective worth talking about. Except the third, maybe. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, so, sorry, the theory is that the stories David Milch might be involved in Oh, it? right. Yeah. Right. So that so, would be so, so, so it will be worth talking okay. about regardless. But, you know, there's a... So I've got this theory about True Detective that... Uh, so, so most people are disappointed by the ending of that first season. Mm-hmm. Right, so you've got uh, Matthew McConaughey's Rust Cole as this uh, kind of nihilistic anti—you know—detective uh, who's spouting anti-natalist uh, philosophy in a way that seems, because it's Matthew McConaughey, um, seems both sort of byronic and dashing, and uh, just like you know, like a deep pool of darkness simultaneously. Sorry, an anti-natalist refers to, to well, the, the sort of this entire school of philosophy that, like, uh, you know, E.M. Ciaran. Am I am I uh, pronouncing that right? Um, you know, sort of the like looking at Schopenhauer and Ciaran and, and, and philosophers were saying, you know, it's better to have never been born. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like life is like, it's not just that life is short, nasty and brutish and we make do with it. It's that like existence is some sort of metaphysical affront. It is. Life is bad for you. L- life is bad for you. And it's yeah. just, it's, you know, and, and, and struggling with this, like, you know, insult to your person of having to exist is maybe the only thing that matters. So, so again, you've got, you know, Matthew McConaughey's character professing this from the very beginning. And, you know, at the end, after he and uh, Woody Harrelson's, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting his character's name, but, you know, they, they ultimately do solve this crime. Uh, and at the, you know, the, the end of the last uh, episode, um, Rust Cole, uh, you know, seems to sort of profess a kind of almost optimism, right? He... he has these, uh, the last lines of the TV show are just blatantly ripped off from this Alan Moore comic book, um, uh, Top Ten. He's talking about, you know, the, the stars in the sky as, uh, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, once there's only darkness, the fact that there are stars means that, like, light is winning, however slowly. And I think a lot of people were disappointed by this because it seemed like, uh, it seemed so at odds mm-hmm. with what this character had been saying the entire time. And, uh, you know, my, my reading of it is that, uh, is that Rust Cole is never really as nihilistic as he says he is. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be that committed a philosophical nihilist and still do the things that his character does. Um, it would just be... Uh, the things seem a bit incongruous. So my theory on mm-hmm. the character is that he is full of shit. He is full. Of, he is. He's. He's saying these things because they sound good and because they make him. 
you know, th their coping mechanism for him dealing with the, uh, you know, death of his child yeah. and, and, you know, whatever uh, darkness he's dealing with uh, following that. But uh, that the show is really in part about his journey to uh, kind of come to terms with the fact that he doesn't really believe this stuff. Mm -hmm. That he's... Uh, that whoever the character is that we spend like nine and three quarters episode, uh, th three quarters, is that how many hours we spend? It with was him? ten, yeah, yeah. Um, is 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 kind of lying to himself, right? So I, I want to come back to that, but he, is James Holden, you think, a correlate of that so, in, in yes. the Expanse? Yeah. How? So, so I think you know what I find interesting. So James Holden's a captain of this ship with this sort of like you know uh, band of. Uh, Misfits isn't quite the right word, but he's got this hero complex, right? He's, you know, he names his, his ship is named after Don Quixote's uh, horse. Well, like, right? like Justice Scalia, he is the child of too many parents. <laughs> he has eight parents. That's right. The sole child of eight parents. That's right. But he has a, um, you know, he kind of has this hero complex yeah, yeah. that um, has him making consistently bad decisions. Right, and it's it's not until kind of the end of the second uh, season that he's really had to confront just like the string of bad decisions he's made out of a professed kind of well, he doesn't really profess it, but he's got this commitment to this hero, this mm -hmm. heroic ideal that just seems to get people killed or seems to uh, never quite turns out the yeah, way that, yeah. that that a heroic adventure is supposed to. And so I guess what we're dealing with is just oh, the really idea of, of heroes without a lot of self-knowledge um, who are, and part of their journey is coming to know themselves yeah. um, as they're, you know, having whatever adventures they're having. So this is the first time I'm hearing all this, and this is great, um, but I do have a, a, a half-baked response. It could be, so all of these characters are easily understood as the alter egos of their authors. Right. And I am, I have not read all of uh, top 10, but the Alan Moore pulls this move a lot. And the most famous example and the one that connected with me first is Dr. Manhattan in The Watchmen, who spends uh, an awful lot of time being a, a transhumanist, um, a kind of anti-natalist, right. right? He sees through to the essential meaninglessness of change and growth because he sees the universe in a kind of four-dimensional, crystalline, relativistic right. way. Um, but then he is undone by probability, by the fact that this woman he loves happens to have existed against all odds. It's not right? even clear that he loves her at that point, right? It's more that he, yeah. uh, at he that point, he's just, he appreciates that she's... He, he appreciates uniqueness, right, right, of individuals in some way. And so he, he abandons the view from nowhere, right? He appreciates particularism and embraces uh, contingency. And, and that's redeeming for him, right? That's right. his redemptive moment. Um, and this happens in Swamp Thing, and this uh, to some degree happens in me. This happens all over in Alan right. Moore. And so my sense there, and I think to some degree in True Detective, and I wonder if it, it's in The Expanse as well, 
it's uh, that the authors are faint-hearted nihilists or faint-hearted antinatalists. Like, they, at the end of the day, know that what they're supposed to have done is to have killed themselves, right? right. That that's the only logical move. And they know that they haven't done it. And so they rationalize it with some kind of transcendence or some kind of redemption, uh, at least for their characters, even if they can't feel it themselves. You sometimes wonder if it's an act of will, right? You hope that uh, by projecting it into someone very close to them, maybe that it will uh, uh, reflect back and sink in. So that, it's a lot of psychologizing, but I do think that the the redemptive move of the nihilist uh, rings hollow in a lot of more, uh, it did ring hollow for me at the end of True Detective Season 1 as well. Um, but I didn't, in True Detective Season 1, see it reflecting back into Cole as his not having... Well, it, it, it rang so false to me at the end. I guess I didn't know what to make of it. Uh, and I wonder if it's connected. So one of the funny... There were two problems with the end of uh, True Detective Season 1. Three, sorry, canonically. One was that it didn't pay off much of the metaphorical weight of what had gone before right. and sort of like the lost problem that there were ended up being too many red hairs. Yes. Another problem was that the guilty party had been too obvious all along, that there was no twist. Right. And then the, in the plot. And then, it, so there's, there's a problem with the storytelling that it was told through eerie coincidence and creepy metaphor that ended up not being about anything. That's right. That's a lost problem. There was, uh, that was a whodunit with no twist. So that was the plotting problem. So this is the, the form problem, the plot problem, the character problem is then that Cole's redemption is, yeah. is, is either not consonant with the other character development or not sold well and also completely ripped off from every Alan Moore protagonist. So, so, the, so, so the sort of epicycle that I can introduce into the like, you know, into the sort of canonical like view of like True Detective, of the flaws of that first season of True Detective is that, um, that Cole doesn't, Cole isn't really changing at the end so much as um, sort of, uh, coming to turn that that like he's had his he's he's confronted his grief yeah um and that he hasn't really meant what he's been saying all along and that there's there's some sort of internal journey where he has to come to understand in a conscious way what he uh, has to, to be to, to be conscious of his own sort of kind of being full of shit insofar mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, spouting dark existentialism. Now, as to the first two, like, you know, things that people point to about the disappointment of uh, that first season, uh, I, I think it points to a, a more interesting and broader problem that is uh, pretty prevalent in art today, and I think it's a problem of cryptography, right? So it's the, you know, there is no, like, human or writer's room that has enough computing power to generate a mystery that Reddit can't solve in 12 minutes, <laughs> right? Like so you have too much aggregated computing yep. power on the like watching end that it can defeat what's on the creative end uh, pretty much near instantaneously. So it's kind of impossible to have uh, an actual mystery 
if you're playing by the rules, like a mystery in which you actually... Well, no, this is just an argument for binging, right? This is why instead of having a 26-episode mystery that it takes eight months to air, you make a a 10-hour mystery that people are expected to watch in its entirety before they do much social media-ing, right? Netflix shows... Netflix shows only get reviewed in their entirety, and I think they largely get social media in their entirety. And so it's about the aesthetic appreciation. Like, nobody complained, I don't think, that the problem with The Sixth Sense was that as soon as people figured it out, they were saying it out loud in the theater. People understood, understand the aesthetic experience of just letting the movie come at you for two hours. And so maybe what we're learning is so, so this is kind of a minor no, this, point. Is, yeah. so, this is right. So, so what you want is, you know, the same way that you want somebody to have their phone off in a theater. Yeah. You want somebody to not have access to Reddit when they're watching a uh, yeah. when, when they're watching a TV show. And you know, you can see you can see sort of the effects of this just across, um, you know, I mean, across the spectrum in terms of especially television, but you know, also movies. It's just it's hard to have surprises, and it's, as a, and it's hard to have mysteries where you don't cheat. Yeah, no, that's right. entirely true. Um, I am very proud of George R. R. Martin, speaking of which, that even though the world figured out what he thought clearly was going to be the big mystery of Jon Snow's parentage, like literally decades ago, these books yeah, have been out right. for 21 years, and I think people had figured it out by the end of the second book. I think by the end of the first. Yeah. But. Um, I was very worried that he was going to change it so that there would be a surprise because I don't think, based on, you know, sort of interviews with him, whatever, that he thought people were going to figure it out so fast. He didn't anticipate the internet. I mean, he literally started publishing yeah, these yeah, books 90, when there was 95. just Usenet. And right. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate that he's letting the story be the story and not trying to outthink the audience on it. And they're also, like, nice twists. Like, nobody saw Hodor coming. And it was right, right. No, I, I think that's a genuine mystery. I mean, I just want to, like, contrast for a second, you know, how people consumed uh, art. Like, just, again, look at the computing power disparity between the creator and the yeah. uh, audience. Like, take Dante, right? Dante, like, the Divine Comedy is written in a lifetime, um, and then roughly, like, you know, the, the way that being a Dante scholar kind of worked is you would, you know, you'd read the Bible and you'd read Aquinas and you'd read, you know, you'd read Aristotle and then you just like read the crap out of Dante. And over the course of a lifetime, you would get really good at reading Dante. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't get to the point of like there just weren't force multipliers for you. Like there was a, there was a body of, you know, people, people published commentaries. But this is progress, right? I mean, uh, Phil Spector let the Beatles sing with themselves, right? I mean, like, like modern recording techniques made things possible in vocal music that weren't before. Or like uh, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody cannot be played live, right? It is a studio. I mean, perfectly. It is a studio creation. Yes. Um, And uh, nobody could write jokes alone at the rate that a Friends or a Seinfeld or whatever or, or a Simpsons yes. or 30 Rock have them. It takes the collective action of a writer's room to produce 26 third of an hours that right. have a joke every five seconds. And uh, so that is a technological advance in art creation. And it may just be that we're in the infancy of this dialogue between creation and digestion. 
yeah. that hasn't reached equilibrium. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, so so I guess the question I would pose is, you know, is it are we just looking at a quantitative disparity in computing power or like is Reddit the equivalent of like quantum computing when it comes to cryptography, that it is so uh, efficient at digesting like serialized television that it uh, that like we need a quantum like like we need a quantum leap on the uh on the creation side, like, do we need like some massively crowdsourced I mean, you're, you're, television show? That's a great question. I mean, to the extent that what you're asking is, is pragmatism the best theory of truth <laughs> on offer? The answer still seems to be yes, right? Um, and Reddit and TV are kind of a little pocket experiment. Uh, uh, that suggests <laughs> that, <laughs> that pragmatism is true, which I kind of like the tit-for-tat experiment in game theory sort of was as well. I mean, there's, there's right. all these kinds of convergence proofs. Uh, I, I wonder what that interactive model would look like, and I wonder if it's going to await lower-friction creative models. Like, you can certainly imagine a generation from now uh, auteur sitcoms where a single person can write a script and feed it into an artificial intelligence that feeds into a 3D renderer such that there aren't intermediating actors, there aren't intermediating right. set designers, that at least at some level of approximation you can go from idea to uh, sensory experience right, without the team effort that we need right now on the creation side. And uh, maybe that kind of force multiplier then allows for the, the, the crowd-created and crowd-consumed uh, product to come. I don't know, but I can certainly see the period we're at now as being a real uh, a transition time. You know, yeah, yeah, we certainly are. And the growing pains are very apparent in, yeah. in so much of what we, uh, in what we watch these days. I do feel like we're in a little bit of a fallen state. I mean, like, I like Westworld a lot, but it was no uh, Deadwood. I mean, I, I, I'm, I think that the, the so-called golden age of TV may be kind of tapering down. Yeah, I think we're definitely in the, sol- in, in the Silver Age now, at the very least, that, um, that yeah, I mean, The, the Wire, uh, Deadwood, they, they really do stand apart. From, and, and I and I really enjoyed Westworld. It's probably the best thing I saw on TV last year. Um, but it's uh, yeah, the, the 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 they're good, but the, the greatness seems to be lacking. Yeah. Although one one thing I will really say in defense of Westworld is that Westwood is speaking Westworld, excuse me, speaks to new issues to That's the right. extent that Westworld is about what playing video games does to us and says about us, that's just a topic that mass culture has not delved into. That's right. Like, this is a big part of life for a lot of people, and we're not dealing with it. Well, so, and again, this is, this is why, this is why uh, our podcast is called Vehicles in the Park, <laughs> because this, this, of course, leads to a bunch of other topics. But one is how much of uh, that aspect of Westworld is just ripped off from Snow Crash, um, which which does deal with sort of what is what does being in mm-hmm. you know what what does a metaverse right like what does yeah. do 
to uh, like how does that affect us and how does thinking about uh, you know brains as hardware and culture and language as software like how much of that uh, is you know how much of that is anticipated like quite fully in something like Snow Crash? No, I, I think that's right, but transmogrifying pure expressions of ideas into more consumable art that expresses those ideas absolutely like is a venerated thing right like <laughs> that's like right. like uh virginia wolf and you know james joyce like they weren't the first people who thought you know my brain does not work in paragraphs right like that had been worked out by william james and everybody right. else for quite some time before somebody said and now i'm gonna tell a story with it that's and right. so and if we're making that move, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, William James and Snow Crash are not exact. But, you know, if you can take something from a kind of niche, niche specialized articulation to something that connects with people, um, I'll be happy if we've got art that's really doing that. Set depth quartz to zero. Stir friction cord. Where can people contact us? If you've stuck with us this long, I realize that our podcast now has a title. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at uh, at vehicles park we have a page on facebook so uh please like us there um i i hope you're uh, i mean like us everywhere like, like us everywhere you possibly can but please uh you know if you uh, oh, we have a website we, we have a website uh vehicles in the park.com uh where you can get uh episodes of uh, the podcast. Uh, you can also download us uh, on Apple's iTunes. And if you do, uh, you know, please subscribe, and uh, you know, please give us a uh, five-star review or uh, you know, leave a review. It will uh, it will help us to get more listeners, and uh, you know, hopefully ensure that we're able to get more episodes uh, out to you. Yeah, and and if it's not iTunes, that is your podcast recipient of choice. If uh, you use Overcast, for example, on iOS, which I quite like. There's a, a like mechanism there as well that can promote us in that directory or wherever uh, else you're finding us. Is that our second episode or our first real episode? I mean, this might be our beta episode. <laughs> All right, beta it is. 